Hello, hello, here it is, episode 7, The Pod Awakens, 2 Pod, 2 Studious, Electric Podaloo, whatever strained movie metaphor you would like to stand by, warm welcomes to all, it's John Doe & Co, Tales of True Crime. Right, first things first, with some very exciting news, our first patron... Huge shout out to Phoenix Beaton McLean and her adorable baby daughter Iris, who have become our first putrid patron pals. Start them early on the spooky stuff. Work wonders for me. Was head of student council at school and everything. And I can change the oil on my car without ringing my dad. Get them listening to true crime in between episodes of Teletubbies, and they might well be the next prodigy. Big love to Phoenix, and please, everyone, join her. You can get your name all over an episode as well. Once you get a few people on board, the bonus content will start. So, let's go. Here we go then. What's on the agenda today? So, people often focus on the US when it comes to witch trials. Salem, of course, being the most famous example. However, Britain also had its own fair share. Never to be outdone when it comes to messed up history, us Brits. A particularly notable one of these trials is known as the Pendle Witch Trials. Let's have a bit of background then. Witchcraft was not made a capital offence in Britain until 1563, although it was deemed heresy and denounced by Pope Innocent VIII in 1484. Maddie has nearly as many sequels as Star Wars. From 1484 until around 1750, some 200,000 witches were tortured, burned, or hanged in Western Europe. No fans of Sabrina knocking about at this time, sadly. Most witches were usually old women, invariably coming from poverty. Any who had what were perceived as physical imperfections, such as crooked teeth or ambilopia, lazy eye in normal person terms, were held under even more intense suspicion. This even extended to women with a hairy upper lip. You know, Veet was still a few hundred years away, but didn't stop people scrutinising a woman's body hair. Not that anyone should anyway, of course. If these women had a cat, this would be assumed to be their familiar, and pretty much seal the deal of an accusation of witchcraft. These women would be hung after some pretty appalling torch methods, such as thumb screws or heated leg irons. Under this horrendous pain, Many would confess to their alleged crime. Anything to stop the torture. Witch fever gripped an area called East Anglia for over a year from 1645. The population here was ardently Puritan and were rapidly against any diversions from the official religion of the country, including Catholicism. A man called Matthew Hopkins, a failed lawyer, was appointed as Witchfinder General and wreaked havoc across the country. Imagine being so salty about not being able to be a lawyer that you just start trying to find witches. Matt, sensitive guy apparently. In a single day, he put 68 people to death in Bury St Edmunds, and a further 19 in Chelmsford. He then set off for Norfolk and Suffolk. A town called Aldbur paid him six quid for clearing the town. Kingsland paid 15 and a stow market, a whopping 23 Great British poundage. At this time, the daily wage was 2.5p, so Matty Boy was the Premier League footballer of his day. 
To be paid this much, surely he had rigorous and reliable methods, right? A lot of Matthew Hopkins' accusations were based on the idea of devil's marks. Any wart, mole, or even flea bite could be identified as such, and he would use a needle to jab it and see if any pain was inflicted. His needle was a three-inch long spike which retracted into a spring-loaded mechanism, meaning the woman would never feel any pain. Therefore, she was a witch. There were other tests for witches, many I am sure you're aware of. Mary Sutton of Bedford was put to the infamous swimming tests. With her thumbs tied to the opposite big toe, she was flung into a river. If she sunk, she was innocent. If she floated, she was guilty. Mary floated, which must have been a relief for about 12 seconds before she was found guilty. A different Mary, Mary Hicks, and her daughter Elizabeth are said to be the last people in Britain executed for witchcraft in 1716. Witch trials formally ended in 1735 with the introduction of the Witchcraft Act of 1735. Pretty on the nose name, that. Despite this, witch hunting did still go on. In 1863, a man was drowned in a pond in Headingham, Essex, and in 1945, the body of an elderly farm labourer was found near Meon Hill in Warwickshire. His throat had been cut and his body pinned to the floor by a pitchfork, supposedly to stop his corpse reanimating. Both men were accused of being wizards. The murders remain unsolved. Crazy to think that in wartime Britain, a witch-related execution still took place. A last reminder of Matthew Hopkins' reign of terror was found in St. Ossith, Essex, when an unmarked grave of two women was found in 1921. Matthew Hopkins was responsible for over 300 deaths. So, the Pendle Witch Trials. Following Queen Elizabeth's death in 1603, there was no heir to the throne. So England wasn't without a leader, James VI of Scotland became James I of England, joining the crowns of England and Scotland. The English were excited about the new ruler and what he may bring to the country. They read the one book he had written entitled Demonology, spelled old-fashioned like making it look like a Coldplay album. They discovered that he was pretty serious about hunting witches. King James was convinced there were witches all over Scotland doing the bidding of Satan. He insisted that the witches be subject to proper addressing by the incumbent authorities. Unfortunately, the English were so swept up in panic and not really knowing what was going on, they took matters into their own hands. Hysteria and not really knowing what's going on. Sounds familiar. This led to the witch trials and hunts and decades of torture, murder and barbarity. The trial of the Pendle witches occurred in 1612. The twelve accused lived in the Pendle Hill area of Lancashire and were charged with the murder of ten people using witchcraft. All but two were tried at Lancaster Assizes on 18th and 19th of August 1612. One died in prison waiting for the trial, and of the eleven put on trial, nine women and two men, all but one were hanged. A lot of the info we have on the trial, which was well documented, comes from Thomas Potts' publication on the trial, The Wonderful Discovery of Witches in the County of Lancaster. Sounds like a Roald Dahl book, but it's much more sinister. 
the number of those executed at this trial makes it stand out as particularly tragic. Between the 15th and 18th century, 500 executions for witchcraft took place, so this case alone makes up 2% of that number. Six of the Pendle witches were from two families, each headed by an octogenarian matriarch. Living to 80 at these times is bloody witchcraft in itself. You were lucky to see a 21st getting litty at the local in those days. So, our roll call. Elizabeth Sevens, known as Demdike, her daughter Elizabeth Devis and her grandchildren James and Alison Devis, Anne Whittle, known as Chattox and her daughter Anne Redfern. The others accused were Jane Bullcock and her son John Bullcock, Alice Nutter, Catherine Hewitt, Alice Gray and Jeanette Preston. The outbreaks of witchcraft in and around Pendle may suggest that some people made a living by being traditional healers, using a mixture of herbal medicine and talismans or charms, which might leave them open to charges of sorcery. At these times, there were sort of two genres of sorceress. A cunning woman was someone who would be helpful. They would heal you, help you find lost possessions, and provide sage advice. Witches were the bad ones who would cause harm and curse people. Many of the allegations in this case resulted from accusations that members of the Demdike and Chattox family made against each other, perhaps because they were in competition, both trying to make a living from healing and begging. The area at the time was not necessarily well respected. It was known for its high rate of theft, violence and sexual laxity, all wavering from the scripture at the time. Demdike was well known as a witch at the time, and had been for 50 years. Some of the murders the Pendle witches were accused of happened within this span, many years before the official investigation was initiated by Roger Nowell in 1612. The inciting incident to the investigation occurred on 21st of March 1612. Demdike's granddaughter, Alison, was on her way to Trawden Forest when she encountered a peddler called John Law. In another life, John Law could absolutely be the protagonist of a 70s cop procedural, but here he is in 1612, knocking about on a forest path. Alison asked him if she could have some pins. Back in these times, these metal pins were an object of value, and used commonly in magical practices and healing, even for love magic. It is unclear whether she was offering to buy them, or simply begging, but either way, John refused her and went on his way. Slighted at this, Alison cursed John, and mere minutes later, he collapsed on the path. Alison was terrified of her own power, and followed John when he managed to get up and stumble to a local inn. His symptoms were that similar to a stroke, difficulty speaking and controlling his left side, his face had fallen. The fact Alison cursed him and he immediately suffered a potentially fatal ailment is pretty mental, but... Of course, rational minds say this is mere coincidence. The idea has also been floated that the curse could have caused John such stress that it brought on the stroke. At the time, witchcraft was taken very seriously, so being cursed was probably not a vibe for many people. I mean, I'd definitely be sketched out today if a little girl on a forest path cursed me. Law initially made no accusation against Alison, but she was racked with guilt. She begged his forgiveness and tried to use magic to heal him to no avail. She, her mother Elizabeth, and her brother James. Seriously, there are only like six names in England at this point. Elizabeth, Mary, James, and that's it. Anyway, 
Alison, Elizabeth and James were summoned to see Roger Nowell on 30th of March 1612. Alison confessed she had sold her soul to the devil and her brother James piped up to say she had also bewitched a local child. Elizabeth admitted her mother had a mark on her body which could be seen as one of those devil's marks left by Satan himself when he sucked her blood. Oh dear, my notes just say Santa, don't they? Left by Santa himself when he sucked her blood. What a Christmas that was. Anyway, when questioned about Anne Whittle, the matriarch of the other magic family, they perhaps saw an opportunity for revenge and threw her under the bus. There was a feud between the families starting in 1601, when a member of the Chattox brood broke into the Malkin Tower where Demdike and her clan lived and stole goods amounting to one pound. About 120 quid now money. Slight aside, Malkin Tower sounds bougie, but it really was not. Apparently the place was a bit of a dive. In fact, the name locally actually meant Slut Tower. The Mean Girl's attitude was alive and well in 1612, friends. Alison accused Chattox of the murder of four men by witchcraft and for killing her father, John Devis, who died in 1601. John was so frightened of Chattox, he made a payment of eight kilograms of oatmeal every year to avoid her wrath. He didn't pay one year and subsequently died. Once again, a very spooky coincidence, or maybe something else. Best not mess with witchcraft, folks, unless it's like Harry Potter or something. Stick to, was this your card? Maybe. On 2nd of April, 1612, Demdike, Chattox and the latter's daughter, Anne Redfern, found themselves in front of Roger Nowell in what could only be a scene of a 1612 magic-themed Jerry Springer. Demdike and Chattox were both blind by this point, but made damning accusations and confessions. Demdike said she had sold her soul to the devil 20 years prior, whilst Chattox claimed she gave hers to a man like a Christian in exchange for Prosper and the ability to enact revenge on anyone she chooses. Based on this quote-unquote evidence, Nowell sent them to Lancaster Jail for maleficium, or causing harm by witchcraft, to the non-Latin speakers in the crowd. All of it could have stopped here, but Elizabeth Devis organised a meeting at Malkin Tower on Good Friday, April 10th, 1612. To feed the party, James Devis stole a sheep from a neighbour. As you do. Those sympathetic to the family attended, and when word reached Roger, he investigated. Eight further people were accused of witchcraft, which brings us to that number of 11 at the top of the episode. Some of the witches, including Alison, genuinely believed in their own guilt and were contrite at trial. Others protested their innocence. But, you know, they might have had a mole on their bottom or something, so guilty as sin. Nine-year-old Janet Devis, one of the accused, was a key witness for prosecuting Roger Nowell. She was to give evidence against her own mother, brother and sister. As we mentioned towards the top of the episode, Nine of the accused were found guilty and executed, with Demdike dying in prison before the trial. Elizabeth Devis was charged with the murders of James Robinson, John Robinson, and, together with Alice Nutter and Demdike, the murder of Henry Mitten. Elizabeth was one who never wavered from her stand of innocence. Thomas Potts, the bloke recording the trial and the guy who had write the book, was particularly barbed towards her. 
he referred to her as an odious witch and made a point to highlight she had a facial deformity with offset eyes. Janet was brought to testify against her mother. Elizabeth began to scream and curse at her daughter and was removed from the court. Janet was placed on a table and calmly condemned her mother as a witch. She claimed Elizabeth had a familiar called Ball who took the form of a brown dog and it was with her magic mascot she carried out the murders she was accused of. She was found guilty. Alison was also found guilty after she confessed to her supposed crime when John Law was brought into court. Her guilt still consuming her after the events in the forest, she fell to her knees and wept. The trials took place not quite seven years after the gunpowder plot, and the Pendle witches were also accused of plotting another gunpowder plot at Lancaster Castle. Historians say this was very likely invented by the prosecution, and somewhat tellingly, Potts dedicated his book to Thomas Niver and his wife Elizabeth. Niver is credited as the one who apprehended Fawkes and foiled the plot, saving King James's life. In a twist of fate, Janet would actually find herself on trial again for witchcraft in 1634, after sealing the dour fate of her mother, brother, sister and the others. The charge against her was the murder of Isabel Nutter, and she was in a group of 20 on trial. It was found evidence had been fabricated, but despite this, all were held in jail where they likely died. An official record on 22nd of August 1636 lists Janet as being at the jail. Nowadays, the witches have become a large draw for Pendle tourism and heritage. Shops selling witchcraft trinkets and souvenirs line the streets, and the Pendle Witch Trail stretches from the Heritage Centre to Lancaster Castle. A hilltop gathering occurs every Halloween, which is bloody awesome. I have to give that a go next year. A petition was put to UK Home Secretary Jack Straw in 1998 to pardon the accused witches. It was decided the conviction should stand, which just seems absolutely bizarre, to be honest. A further appeal for Demdike and Chattox was also rebutted. So, like, officially and legally, they are all still guilty, and their executions were apparently warranted. I mean, Boris Johnson looks like a bloody warlock, so maybe he should be next on the stand, eh? The events inspired many poems and novels, including Robert Neal's Mist Over Pendle and Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett's Good Omens, which features several characters who borrow names from the Pendle witches. Poet Simon Armitage hosted a 2011 documentary on BBC4 called The Pendle Witch Child, which I would highly recommend. It has these really cool animations and it's really well made, so give it a go. A life-size statue of Alice Nutter by sculptor David Palmer was unveiled in her home village roughly in 2012. In August 2012, a world record for the largest group dressed as witches was set by 482 people who walked up Pendle Hill, on which the date, 1612, had been installed in 400-foot-tall numbers by artist Philippe Hanford. 400 years later, and the Pendle witches and their story still hold massive influence in the town. I wish it was in better circumstances, but here's to their memory living another 400 years. So there we have it, folks. Episode 7 in the can. Hope you enjoyed it. What mental time 1612 were. Mind you, these days are a little crazy too, so I do hope you're all taken care of there. 
If you fancy updates on the show, do follow at John Doe and Co Pod on Insta and Twitter and drumroll TikTok. I don't really understand the bloody thing, but I'm there anyway. You'll be able to see teasers for upcoming releases, have a chat and get updates to your feed. Rate, review and subscribe on your podcasting app, please, as would love to see more thoughts here. If you're a sick legend like Phoenix, head on over to Patreon at patreon.com forward slash John Doe and Co pod and donate. It's mainly about supporting the show right now, but some cool bonuses will be coming soon. And feel free to DM me any suggestions on what you'd like to see as always. What's next then? How do we top this one? One of my favourite musicians of all time is Marvin Gaye. He recorded some all-time belters and is just an absolute icon for so many reasons. Sadly, his death was deeply tragic and traumatic. A case of filicide, a parent killing their child. Very dark and really heartbreaking, but a case that needs to be talked about. I hope to see you there and thanks for being such good company. Until next time.